When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. This is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, July 8th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We were off last week for holidays. Yeah. We're back. We're in the summer doldrums here when it comes <laughs> to the world of books and reading, I would say. Pretty quiet. We totally are. It's, uh, it was it worked out nicely for everyone that we didn't have to record a news show last right. week because there wasn't really much news. No, no. So we're back and we're kind of getting through the, the summer. We're between the summer releases, um, waiting on the fall, the Apromois La Deluge of the Fall. Um, we I think we talked about in our f- summer preview draft, the absolute smorgasbord that will <laughs> be spread out before us on the table when it comes to fall books. Have you read anything interesting? Well, actually, let's do a sponsor oh, break, and we'll yes. t- maybe we'll do a little recent reading mm-hmm. while we're trying to gin up something to talk about here for a few minutes. But uh, first, a uh, word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
Yeah. So anyway, what what have you been reading uh, of late here? What have I been reading of late? I'm waiting for my spreadsheet to load so I can answer. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Should have taken a longer sponsor break. To, it's like, how long is this time. imaginary sponsor well, I can break? Vamp for a few. I haven't read much recently. I, I guess the, the surprise to me of this year, I, I asked for recommendations for in preparation for our favorite books of the year so far. This one did make my list, but it's some, not something I would read normally, but I really did like it. It was called Version Zero by David Yoon with hmm. Jess Woodbury, our, our, one of our sales managers, recommended to me. And it's kind of a techno thriller. I mean, basically the premise is, what if a small group of like tech rebels took down the internet and just like nuked it so that it oh, was, we couldn't go online and what, what would happen and could they do it, what the consequences would be. And it's pretty thriller. It gets a little more violent than my, my gentle constitution would prefer on the end. But as you might imagine, when you take down the internet, some people are invested in the success or relative failure of the internet. Um, so I, that was one that was a good surprise to me. So that that's one that's a little outside of my normal, but I'm glad to stretch my proverbial yeah. wings a little bit when it comes that to is a So good that's one. Version Zero by David Yu. Uh, I just read Yoke by Jessamine Stanley. Ah, yoga, which is, right? Yes, yoga. Mm. She is um, a self-described fat black queer yogi, and she's pretty mm. Instagram famous if you're in the yoga space on the internet. Um, she had a really wonderful book out a couple of years ago called Everybody Yoga that was sort of an introduction to the practice and walked through some postures and some ways to modify postures to make them more accessible depending on different body types and different abilities. Mm. And this is more of a it's a memoir in like vignette essays about the more spiritual and internal personal practices of yoga and sort of how she came to yoga and what it is like to be a person of color in the yoga space which has been co-opted in all kinds of ways by white people and really like she just speaks truth to all of the issues and there's mm. no bs about it i find her voice to just be so refreshing and i feel like um this is a book that anybody who's ever wondered, like, if you've been like yoga curious, um, <laughs> but thought maybe it wasn't for you, I think it, her book answers like, yes, it is. It's for everyone. But here's why. And also some real validation of what some of the issues are that go on in that world. That was really, really wonderful. Mm. Um, and I'm finishing a collection of essays called The Wreckage of My Presence by Casey Wilson that um, I heard about on a podcast. So, you know, podcast ads do work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, it's just a good collection of essays. She's an actress. She was on Happy Endings, which I I didn't watch, but I might now. I don't oh, know. I'm, wait, which one was she? I love that show. You would like that show. Oh, That's a okay, great well, show. Good, okay, she's brunette, like tall okay, and yeah, long brown hair. I think hair. she's Penny on that show. She's really funny. Okay. I like all the people on there. You, well, yes. Okay. Why did, I, did I not recommend this to you? Like, I don't It's like think three so. seasons. It's one of the great sort of like well, it just hit, favorite. You know. Okay, well, it just hit Netflix. So I'm sold. Like I got influenced into buying the book and now I'm getting influenced mm-hmm. into watching Happy Endings, but that's fine with me. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Um, she lives in Hollywood. A bunch of her friends are actresses, but they also seem to be like relatively normal people. And she's telling funny stories about her family and what it's like to be a mom and deal with Hollywood stuff. And I'm just enjoying it. It's like it's perfect for the summer. Yeah. Um, so been I've been digging that. And then 
I read a memoir, I guess about a month ago. It's not new, but it's summer reading. So I'm going to talk about it. Um, called The Boys of My Youth by Joanne Beard. Mm. Which mm, was, Joanne oh, Beard is great. Okay. Everyone, you have failed me. Like a friend recommended it to me recently and was like, you're just really going to love it. It's a memoir that if you didn't know it were a memoir, you would think you were reading like a kind of gritty collection of Southern fiction. Yeah, and that's then it, Joanne Beard. In a, I mean, a writer's, I mean, sorry, I'm not just yeah, Kind of a writer's writer, not someone that is known. Yeah, but she should be known. And and she's not Southern. Is she's from like Michigan. Mm -hmm. So it rang those right. It's weird. Like I was I texted this friend, like, this feels like Bonnie Jo Campbell, who I also love, and who it surprises me every time I remember that Bonnie Jo Campbell is like not from Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's something to the two named like, if you go by two first names, it feels right. like you're Southern by well, default. Well, and just, like, the feeling of the stories, you know? There's a lot of, like, sitting on screened-in porches, being with her sister, remembering getting lots of mosquito bites and, like, the imprint of the screen on her cheek when she was pressing her face up against it to watch the fireworks and, like, mm. all these just, like, really wonderful, sharp details. And as the title, The Boys of My Youth, would tell you, like, one of the essays in this sort of memoir and essays is about relationships actually many of them are about romantic relationships throughout her life but just they are evocative and sharp and everyone should read these and i'm really happy that you're so excited about it but now i'm gonna stay mad that you didn't tell me about her sooner you can go back i think she's been writing for a while i think it's one of those people i read in like an introduction to contemporary fiction can that be right? 25 years ago? That didn't oh, feel wow. right to me. Maybe I'm getting confused with Bonnie Jo Campbell. But yeah, one of those, if you know, you know. That's well, a good list. If you know, is. you know, writers. Ooh, you should think about that. That would be point. an interesting yeah. series of things for sure. But yeah, I was really delighted to read that. And I kept having to remind my brain, we are reading a memoir. This is a memoir. This feels like fiction. It feels like like short stories, but this is a memoir and the way that they all sort of fall together. Mm-hmm. It's just so, it's so good. It was a perfect recommendation from someone who's clearly a better friend to me than you are. We're not friends here. <laughs> this is podcast is a battle. Podcasting is a battlefield. Uh, I think it was Pat Benatar who, who coined that one. I've got, I, I'm looking forward to, I have family in town, so I haven't been doing as much recreational reading of late, but I've got queued mm. up for this week and next week. My, I've been looking forward to this since I heard about it. Um, Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. Yes, have you heard of this book? I have heard of this. I haven't. Read All it I yet, needed though. was this. Almost Famous meets Daisy Jones and mm-hmm. the Six, the wonderful debut novel by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Um, that's all the blurb that I need to hear. Pretty per- that's uh, pretty perfect. This. I'm really looking for a nice big blurb from Nick Hornby. It's gotten good reviews, and I think it's what I'm looking for. You know, being 14, this is in the 70s. So, question related to mm-hmm. this 14 year old girls coming of age in the 1970s Baltimore, Rebecca Shinsky, is mm-hmm. that historical fiction <gasps> at this point? I am unprepared for that to be the. <laughs> no? Because my, my, my brain, my heart says no. But if you'd asked me in 1994, if something written in 1954, which is the same difference in time from oh. now to 1970 is historical fiction, oh. my answer would have been an unequivocal oh. yes. I mean, this feels like a moment that I had recently clicking on a Spotify list of called like oldies but goodies. Oh and many of God. them were songs I listened to in high school. I know. The existential moment for Michelle and I, one day we're walking through Ikea, 
and they start playing Smells Like Teen Spirit oh, in God. Ikea. And I'm like... <laughs> that you know, is... That's dark. That's, that's really a really, <laughs> really tough place to be. Oh, uh, man. One of my uh, summer media interests that hasn't outside of books has been this podcast called Band Splain mm-hmm. that... Um, each episode is a deep dive into a band that has a cult following. And so they, most of these are bands that have been around for a while, like long enough to have developed a cult following. But one of the themes that recurs through those episodes is somebody being like, man, this song was such a banger back in the day. And now you hear it in CVS. It's, you know, you either die a hero or live long enough <laughs> to be anodyne true. background music while someone's buying suppositories. I... Those are the two. Those are your two outcomes. I... You know what? Maybe this is a hot take. I don't care, but I'm oh, still. I'm ready. Wait. I'm drawing the line. Okay, it's not. It. It, it is not historical fiction if it happened after 1960. So you're saying that in a hundred years, someone writes a book <laughs> no, said in 1972. No, 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 no. But for now, for for me. So like, what's the line? I, 50, 50 years. Let's call it 50 years. So I'm in 1994. Right, I'm, uh-huh. I'm my 16-year-old, completely insufferable book yourself, and I read a World War II novel, a novel written and set in World War II. It's not historical fiction. That's fifty. That's forty-nine years. Mm. Can there be I like want, a special exception in which war look, novels are basically always historical right. fiction? I'm trying to help us here. <laughs> I want you to be right. There's something about the 70s. Like, if you had said it's set in the 60s, is that historical fiction? I would be like, I mean, maybe? The 70s is just not historical. Not weighty enough I to mean, even warrant the tag historical It lives fiction. in this weird... Well, there. I mean, there was something special about the 70s also. But, like, it, yeah. it feels like it lives in a limbo zone where, like, the 80s are clearly too recent to be historical fiction. Like... <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> now, said, with, said with such conviction, I just went along with him. Like, clearly, she's Thank right. You. She feels so strong. You know what? If you no... say it confidently enough, that's, that's right. like 80% of the game. Yeah. I... Wasn't in the phrase, go confident in the direction of your hot take? I think that's the, that, that's the quote <laughs> you we know, all know. I mean, that's the rule we're living by here today. Right. <laughs> Is this book... Hist- I am t- My heart cannot take this. Like, I... I could maybe understand the intellectual argument for it, but everything in my soul resists being like, yes, a story about the 70s is historical fiction. I don't know. I don't read a lot of historical fiction. In I don't my, either. I don't either myself. In no, my imagination, to qualify as a historical fiction truly, it has to be like about spy, a lady depression. Sp- right, yeah, a lady go, right. spy in World War II or prior. <laughs> She's wearing a long dress and her back is facing <laughs> the camera on the cover. That is all historical fiction. This if it's has just a cover If it's just fiction set in the past, this is what feels the distinction in my experience of books is that there's a difference between fiction set in the past and historical fiction. And it's like how big a role the moment in time or the moment in history plays like being a 14 year old girl, that kind of coming of age story. We see those in every decade. And it's like if the accoutrements are just Mm. from the 70s. Does that really make it a work of historical fiction? So maybe to rephrase differently so that I can agree with you, is <laughs> if it just happens to be set in the 70s yes. versus yes. it's necessary to be set in the right. 70s. Because the other thing about this cover is 
Speaking of covers being indicative, this is a 14-year-old girl who's holding a vinyl LP smoking a cigarette. If that's not historical, <laughs> if, that's, if that's not well, look, out of our current time, I don't the know. The vinyl has come back around, though, my friend. and oh, just that's fair. And you could just you know, Photoshop in a jewel, I guess. The kids are doing that these days, right? I don't know what you're talking about. That's a that's a that's a um, aerosolized tobacco consumption pot. So it's a vape kind. situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think we need to investigate this in further detail at some point after you've settled down. You're in you're, you're complete in, in total shock that I even dare suggest that something set 48 years ago. Clutching every last one of my pearls. That's right. Yeah. If you're actually wearing pearls, then we would be in historical <laughs> fiction of some kind. Point. Well, that was a fun check-in on what we've been reading. I would love to hear from our readers. Or God, I keep doing this recently. Podcast people are listening with their ear holes, not reading with their eyeballs. Um, if you have a good sense of what historical fiction is, what makes it. I enjoyed General in Moscow this summer. I think I talked about that before. Mm clearly historical fiction is it one of those you know it when you see it would we disagree here i, I don't know I'm, I'm not really sure there, i think you're onto something with does it just happen to, to be there or is the setting a central point of interest because if Thank this said 14 years old in 1995 you could maybe write a very similar story and then I don't think I would call that historical fiction. If it's that she, I don't know, the, the main character gets involved with Greg Allman or something, <laughs> goes to then Woodstock. it's clearly, then yeah, yeah, right. Or, you know, goes to Studio 54 and that's a central place. Maybe it then verges on historical fiction. We're actually launching um, a historical fiction focused newsletter for the site starting in the fall. So maybe we can get some, whoever's <laughs> writing that for us can maybe come on and straighten us out and calm us down. You mean agree with us. Yeah, right. Or get completely cut out of the episode. Uh, however that way that goes. All right, let's do another sponsor break. We'll come back, talk to news. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. 
This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, um, let's see. Should we should we check in with um, May Your Efforts Fail stuff real quick before we yes. talk about stuff we like? Texas, you want to go Texas? I guess that's our only I mean, really May Your yeah. Efforts Fail thing <laughs> that's, that's the whole tweet, May Your Efforts Fail, right. Texas. Right. Yeah, walk um, me through this. Okay, so we, we have been talking on the show and, you know, in the world about the ongoing conversations folks on the right seem to be having about critical race theory or that they are having or think they're having. Um, The most recent example of this uh, occurred in Texas. Uh, The Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum, which is right across the street from uh, the Alamo invited a panel of authors, including um, the author of a book called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, to discuss their work. They were supposed to appear there last week on July 1st. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, hasn't made any remark, but his lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, um, got the event canceled because the book explores the racial history of the battle of the Alamo. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's incorrect. Greg Abbott canceled the book event. He has not commented on it, but his lieutenant governor confirmed that that happened. So just as a quick review, critical race theory is an academic framework that looks at the ways that race has been embedded systemically throughout all aspects of American history. Um, It was certainly a part of what was happening in Texas and certainly a part of what happened at the Battle of the Alamo. And they don't they. (laughs) Well, you know what this at this point, they are a they to me, like uh, the folks on the Mm -hmm. right who are lobbying to just remove discussions of nuance and race from the public conversation about American history um, are, you know, just. trying to erase these parts of American history. And the governor of Texas himself got involved and had this event canceled. So may the efforts, may their next efforts fail. Um, I I mean, I wish this were surprising, but it's like if you paid any attention to what Greg Abbott did for the last 18 months, it's not. It's censorship. I mean, we talk about what's mm-hmm. actually censorship and what isn't. The state saying this event cannot happen is censorship. Right. It just, yeah. in, in case we need, we need like one of those like censorship applausometers. Like, where are we <laughs> on the, and this is over the line where you have a state body, um, a state, you know, governor telling an institution it cannot do something. What mm-hmm. a great title, by the way. Uh, applause on the on the title for forget the alamo um and i think a good job on the state museum of Mm -hmm. having this right it's across the street from the alamo central to texas mythology one of the few things i know about texas history at all is something something alamo i guess and this talking about is american myth and the kind of thing you want a museum to do is talk about and frankly keep alive the the ongoing discourse um i mean i guess I shouldn't be surprised. Um, I think I'm surprised by this one because 
you tend not to see panels of historians get the That's rug true. pulled out from under them. We, Rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying it's worse or better than, say, Alex George or Alex Gino getting George pulled. It's it's not worse or better. It just happens differently. Um, but this kind of top-down from the governor rather than from some angry parent who mm-hmm. wants to pull George is a little bit different, right, Rebecca? I mean, it feels yeah, quite it, a bit different in that regard. It is. And we'll link to a piece that was written by Kelly Jensen, a book writer. Kelly is freshly back from parental Welcome leave. Back, and like her, on her first day back, she got <laughs> to dig she straight really into... She came out with a club, right? Started swinging. It was good. <laughs> she really got to dig into this. But she notes that the book challenges the mythology around the Alamo and its role in independence from Mexico and posits that the origins were also about preserving slavery. Um, and then argues, goes on to argue that celebrating the Alamo then has a history in upholding whiteness. And certainly coming down from the governor, a governing body in this country, literally censoring an event that examines factual recorded history. (laughs) Um, It's very troubling to see. It's, you know, all of the stuff around critical race theory, all of the discussion is such a I think intentional misrepresentation of what critical race theory is supposed to do. And it's one of those moments that in which the right is doing what they perpetually accuse the left of Mm -hmm. doing by silencing conversation, which like in, in a democracy and in public education, and I know, you know, we're not talking about a school here, but we're talking about a public institution at the Alamo and these museums that, the idea is not we tell one story and only the one story. The idea is education is supposed to expose us to many ways of thinking about things. And here are the facts of history and here are the different interpretations of the things that occurred. And you're supposed to be learning how to think and how to examine. And that folks on the right feel so insecure, apparently, about the solidity of their take that they don't want anybody to be exposed to anything alternative like i think that's what's going on under the core Mm -hmm. here but of course that's not the way that it's being presented and to see a governor do it is a new thing but it's not entirely new because we're also seeing many states many state legislatures are passing laws against the teaching of um, the teaching of things that they are labeling as critical race theory. You know, one of the sort of viral Instagram or tweet things that I saw um, when Juneteenth was made a federal holiday a few weeks ago was like, oh, cool. So we're going to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. But now in several states, it's illegal to teach about Juneteenth. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a wrinkle to this one, which is worth noting, which is the museum itself scheduled the event. But then the board of directors and Governor mm-hmm. Abbott serves on that board, then decided once they found out about it to cancel the event. So they have – they're not really censoring because they the board is in control of the, in, the institution. So I should be careful about that, I, I guess, because mm-hmm. that is their – they are in control of the institution. I guess the, the, the then is – the people who actually run the museum, we know how boards of directors work, especially with nonprofits. They come in once a quarter. They show up for the fundraising yep. event. You know, they sign the things to, to do the financial statements to go to the accountant. But the people actually, I wish I had a name here that could shout someone out um, mm-hmm. at the Bob Bullock, Texas. They had the presence of mind, creativity, and the willingness to entertain other ideas to host at the thing that's across from the Alamo. Probably the only reason anyone ever comes to the Bob Bullock State History Museum <laughs> is because the line is too long at the Alamo. <laughs> and they still have the temerity 
uh, temerity is wrong word. That's kind of pejorative. They still have the gumption, the courage, the you know, the will, the open-mindedness to host an event that questions the centrality, validity, and you know, basically triumphalism of the Alamo. Right there, that's what we want. That's great. So, this is a moment where I wonder if those people are going to stick around there. If you're at work at the Bob Bullock State History Museum, now people have money, family, and mortgages and other things. I know it's not that easy, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have a couple of resignations. They're like, okay, yeah. that's not what I signed. This is not what we want to do here. Did they know that this could be controversial? I'd be curious to hear how surprised or unsurprised mm. the rank-and-file people doing the programming on a day-in, day-out basis at the museum were to sort of have it blow up. Uh, in their face, maybe was provocative, which I kind of even like even better, frankly, if that's something they were wondering about. <laughs> yeah, if they um, planned it knowing it would be provocative, even bigger applause to yeah. those folks. Yeah, it, this feels similar to what's been going on at the University of North Carolina with Nicole Hannah-Jones right. and, you know, seeking tenure, then the tenure process functionally being like pulled out from underneath her because of objections of members of the board and then the battle you know, around that, ultimately, they offered her tenure, and she said, no, thank you, I'm going to go to Howard University, which, of course. <laughs> yeah. You um, know, we didn't have that on the agenda, because it kind of comes, it's like two separate threads. It's hers, which 1619 Project, it's not really book-related necessarily, but the one that is, that caught my attention more is Coates going to oh, Howard. Oh, yes, yeah. And this is something that I didn't think of, because of who I am, and I don't think about these things generally, of in terms of academic power structures, and in a way that it affects arts and letters too, frankly, which one way a lot of literary folks would support themselves would take teaching positions, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Columbia MFA program is stacked even more than Ivy League should be stacked because it's New York and writers want to live in New York and NYU and the New School and all the way, you know, Brooklyn College is a murderer's row MFA teachers in New York (laughs) because they want to be in New York and that's how you you know, get your monthly nut and then you can work on the, the other things as, as your career. What we haven't seen historically is someone like a Coates, someone like, well, Toni Morrison, frankly, who took mm-hmm. a res. you know, she was at, at Princeton. Or Princeton. Uh, well, Stanford okay. and then Princeton are back and forth a little bit like that. The historically back colleges did not attract that kind of talent. And there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing is they didn't attract that kind of talent because they didn't have the same kind of endowments and they didn't have the same kind of endowments because they didn't have the same kind of stature. And this is one of those situations, rather than say, I don't know, decolonizing Harvard, let's mm-hmm. go to this other thing that has, we can have more control that can be built in such a way that we don't have to take something apart, right? That we can build and be welcome and be at home rather than be seen as, or even even in the, in the most generous way possible, part of something else, right? A piece of the puzzle rather than being the puzzle itself. I think... If this and also this is also happening in sports a little bit. Some mm-hmm. very highly recruited basketball recruits have have signed on for historical black to play at historically black colleges, which is something I don't remember seeing happening in my lifetime. And it makes a ton of sense to me. If you're if you're Nicole, if you're Taniasi, and you've got that kind of juice, and you're thinking about how to use it, this seems like a natural fit to me. I'd be, I would be really interested to see if there's a wave of people thinking along the same lines. Mm. I I wonder how much they're not being a HBCU in New York, in LA matters, right? Because it's, you know, Southern, you know, it's Washington, sure. DC and sort of South. So someone has to make a lifestyle change. It sounds like Nicole Hannah-Jones really is making that kind of a change. I mean, DC is not that far from where she was going to be in Chapel anyway, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Coates is a Brooklynite. 
right? I mean, yeah. so I don't know where he's been living. He, he's writing Black Panther and stuff now. So I, I think money's not necessarily the thing. He might be thinking about legacy in other different kinds of ways. But where do you want to, where do you want to swing and grow and nurture and cultivate your clout and have the halo effect of your clout? But who do you want to benefit from the halo of your clout? Mm-hmm. And thinking through that again, I think is, it could, be, it could be Titanic. It could be Titanically um, interesting. To me, this is, as, this is as meaningful in academia as like Stephen King saying, I'm self-publishing from here on out. Yeah. It, it, it's that kind of a move to give other people, if the people haven't spent time in academia, I really feel like it could be that kind of, mm-hmm. um, of an impact. So that wasn't on the agenda, but I, I guess I had 90 seconds I was interested in talking about. That. Yeah, I think that you're right, that it could be really significant and it will be fascinating to see who else you know follows mm-hmm. in those footsteps of functionally saying, I'm not looking for the validation from these you know historically very white institutions i'm not looking to do the work and like there was a ton of work and a ton of bs involved in nicole hannah jones being at the university of north carolina for as long as she was and she released a really you know very much a wonderful and much kinder (laughs) statement about it than i think i would have been inclined to make Um, michelle read that to me out loud by the way when she said she was like listen to this yes yeah that's serious stuff i'll find a link to put in the show notes it is it is really serious stuff but to say like no well we will i'm going to take my talents to howard and for ta Coates to make this the same decision i'm certain he had other options (laughs) Um, Uh, i would think so yeah is really fascinating. And I hope that this is a cautionary tale to other universities. And hopefully, you know, that this can be part of the conversation that we're having just in general, but universities and publishing houses that if you are not like, actively doing the work of inclusion, which is different than just diversity, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not just getting the people in the room, it's actually making space and welcoming and making it a safe environment where people are celebrated and allowed to do the work that they have been spent their lives preparing to do and the kind of studying and research that Nicole Hannah-Jones had been preparing to do, they will go somewhere else. Your institution or your publishing house will not get to benefit from those people's creativity and energy and resources and labor. Um, and if you're looking for the I don't, marketplace benefits of a diverse workforce, there's a lot of responsibility that comes in creating that as well. And I think we're, we're seeing that tension. I think it's, it's good tension um, to see. It's not tension that we want to continue having. Right. Um, let's do some more. Let's do some more book talk. Um, I don't know that Janelle Monet. I know you're a big fan. I am a fan. Like not, I've been to, you've been to a concert. Like there, that's the, the bright line. If you've been mm. to this artist concert or not, like that's the fan versus big fan. I would say for for most um, kinds of performance artists. Apparently, she has a new, well, new a debut fiction collection that Harper Voyager is going to be publishing. It's coming out April April nineteenth. Um, the Memory Librarian and Other story, Stories from the World of Dirty Computer. So is it, I, I didn't do all, is this related to the, the album? I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking at here. Do we understand I this? I have not been deep into the details about mm. this. I'm not sure that deeper details than this even are available, but I think so. I was going to say, like, of all the musicians that could do a short story collection, there's already so much world building that exists in Janelle Monet's work, especially on the Dirty Computer album, that I 
assume that these are stories that are set kind of in that same feeling, that same sensibility um, of the album. But I'll, and there's kind of a tech futurist element to a lot of it, Um, you know, refers to a character um, that's the arc android that appears on several of her albums. And so I think we can expect it to be like tech stuff and weird and really cool. And I'm, I'm just super excited. I'm glad that Janelle Monet has like spent some time in the last couple of years writing short stories and that we're going to get to read them. As a reader and writer of science fiction since childhood. Wow. That's interesting. I, I don't know that much about her. I always liked, she's a real triple threat now. She's got mm-hmm. books. She's, she's a wonderful actress and you know, uh, one of the great, you know, modern uh, recording artists too. So uh, really Really, we need to. You know, there's the goat. You know, Grammy, Oscar. Uh, oh, the, the, the egots. Yeah. E, yeah, egots. We need to add a writer one on there. You know, can mm. we get a, a P in there? A P got something yeah. there for the Pulitzer or something? Because there's that. There's people. Who? Great question. We'll have to think about this. I'd, I'd, I'd welcome um, listener suggestions. The best book by a famous person who's famous for not writing. Oh. Did I get? Do you see what I'm getting at uh-huh. there? I'm, I didn't explain that very well. Um, does anything come immediately to mind to you? Mm, not, I mean, well, I was going to say Kitchen Confidential, but Bourdain got famous for writing. Yeah. Got famous as a Um, writer, not for books necessarily, but for writing. Yeah. That's a good one. I'll have to, I will have have to think, we'll have to come back and think about that. Um, Jim Bolton's Ball Four, which is like the first great sports memoir which doesn't age very well for a lot of reasons is often considered the great book by an athlete um at this point i'm trying to think of you know leonard cohen i guess Mm. um though i can't think of one that sticks out to me necessarily probably those people who are leonard cohen fans will write in and let us know but yeah let us know i'd like to hear i'd like to hear the list of 10 best books by celebrities um that are famous for not writing for other things um, would be pretty interesting. This should be fascinating to see. I think it should How be. Is it, does it, do these books, does this book going to sell? Like, I don't have a sense of like, are Janelle, Janelle Monet fans going to go buy this? They're going to buy a collection of short stories? Is that how this works? I, I don't really have a good prior for how to understand don't the sales shape know. of this. I don't know. I think I'll be watching when this hits Edelweiss if they release the first printing numbers. I think that'll mm-hmm. be pretty telling. But the like Venn diagram of music fans who are also into like Janelle Monet fans who are also into like nerdy books, I think it's probably a bigger Venn diagram than most musicians or many musicians, mm. but that's still a relatively small thing. Like I, I believe from listening to her music for a long time that she is a fan and has been a fan of sci-fi fantasy for her entire life. And I think, you know, they could probably sell as many copies of just like a cool debut fiction collection about these kinds of things by someone not named Janelle Monet oh, as they could yeah. by someone right. named Janelle Monet. I don't know how much will be reliant on on her name for this. I'm I, yeah, I don't know. It feels fascinating sticky. to see. Yeah. I'd love to know what the terms are. This is the thing we always want to know. What's the advance look like? <laughs> you know, what kind of publicity <laughs> is she doing? Is she giving right, an interview to Goodreads? Like, was this always the plan or was it like yeah. it was stuck in her house in COVID and she was like, why don't I write some short stories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and Dirty Computer is, it's, it's, 
it's hard to talk about music as a literary work, but I think as as much as you can say an album is a literary work, I'd put Dirty Computer up there with one of the great pop literary works. Yeah, I think so too. I feel like in 10 years, I want a Joan Morgan book about Dirty Computer Mm. that was similar to the Joan Morgan book about the miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Yeah, yeah, I'll read those Mm. forever. Okay, one last sponsor break, and we're going to talk about the greatest audiobook pairing that I have ever heard of. And may never be topped. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. If you've followed The Lord of the Rings as a cinematic property at all, and then have also followed Andy Serkis's cinematic career, you will be both delighted and sort of disappointed that we haven't thought of this already, that Andy Serkis will be narrating a new performance like what do we call a new version a new audiobook I mean, what, what is the name for the the actual performance uh, a new version of the Lord of the Rings which duh I guess is the right <laughs> I, and I'm not sure how to take I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see it I will definitely listen to this Andy Serkis who did the mocap and voice of Gollum who's gone on to be maybe the first great mocap actor of all time he's done all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff has moved into, plays um, Ulysses Claw in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's done some other things as well, stepped into directing. But I, I couldn't be more excited to listen to a book I've read multiple times <laughs> and have literally nothing else to learn from it than I will be to listen to Andy Serkis, Andy Serkis narrate the Lord of the Rings series. I am having similar feelings. You know, this interest, I think the interesting piece here is that this grew out of, during COVID, Andy Serkis did a 12 straight hour like live reading of The Hobbit as a fundraising effort for, mm-hmm. some, for, for some charities in the UK. And after that, somebody at HarperCollins was like, oh, we should do new editions of the audiobook. And if you're that person, are you not asking yourself, how did we not think of this what, what, did, did they not approach him and he didn't <laughs> want to do it before or something? Like, I, I yeah, don't know. I don't know. I, look, I was just thinking this morning, Bob and I have to do a road trip at Thanksgiving. And I was like, what are we going to listen to? Because we're almost finally done with Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. And this is obviously what we're going to listen to when we're driving around the middle of the country. <laughs> yeah. there's You have many versions, audio versions to choose from right now. Um, there's an Ian Holm, Michael Horton one that's, I think, was an NPR joint. This one, this audiobook version is available pre-order in the UK. The US one doesn't seem to be available just yet. This is from a piece that I'll link to on tour.com by Andrew Liptak. 
I don't know when this is coming out. I don't have any sense of when this is coming out at, at all. Makes me wonder what what else? Have, what obvious audiobook performances oh, are we missing? Here? It's it is coming out on September sixteenth from major audiobook retailers, and the CD will Where'd be released you get that? on October. That's not in the thing I'm looking at. Oh, it's on the up, piece up, on up tour. Thing. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, you know, you mean the actual thing I was referring to and said I read that thing. That's <laughs> yeah, that's it is? the one. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I, this is going to be so fun because Andy Circus narrating this feels like when your dad does the cool voices during bedtime, you know, like it won't just be narration. It will, I think hopefully be all the character voices and Gollum is in these books. So. Mm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. It makes me wonder. I mean, the, the, the Jim Dale performance, um, the canonical one on the Harry Potter series is up there. Stephen Fry's um, Hitchhiker's Guide, I think is kind Mm -hmm. of Pantheon. That's a good one. Pantheon audiobook performances. Um, it makes me wonder, there's been, have you seen, sorry, I'm off that we have to go here in just a minute, but Spotify is now doing the thing again of trying to get me to listen to audiobooks, um, public domain audiobooks performed by famous people. It has not tried to get me to do that. There is, um, I'll have to look, I'll have to look it up for next time. I think it's Kate Winslet doing Pride and Prejudice, maybe. Mm. It's like, what's it, who would we want to get to do the complete Austin? Someone like, do I want Judy Dench? Like, do I want an older kind of voice in some of those? Or do you want a younger kind of person? Or maybe you want is like, but there's so many voices and so many great characters. I feel like there's a Stephen Fry, uh, Jim Dale equivalent performance out there for someone to do the major Jane Austen works as sort of one shot that kind of all goes together. Um, that could be pretty, uh, pretty fantastic over there as well. Um, anyway, that's our show this week. You can email us podcast at bookriot.com looking for canonical audiobook performances uh, i'm looking for um how, what evidence what further evidence do you have that rebecca is right that mary jane <laughs> said in the 1970s could not possibly be historical fiction uh and all other things uh, related any feedback you've got for the the show for us this week um rebecca we'll talk to you next time have a good one 